Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good evening. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to think on the theme this evening, an approved servant of Jesus. If you look on the back side of the outline that you have, you'll see a reminder of guiding principles for biblical interpretation. The reason I provided that is because verse 15 reminds us to be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you'll notice that the very first principle is that context rules when interpreting the text. There's both an immediate context, those verses right around the particular passage that you're examining, and then there's a greater context. So, for example, if we were talking about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, the immediate context is the first 13 verses of chapter 2, and then the verses that follow, 19 through the end of the chapter. Uh, a larger context is 2 Timothy. Uh, a larger context than that are the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, the larger context than that is all the writings of Paul. Uh, after that, the New Testament. And then after that, the totality of God's Word. Now, what I'd like to do tonight, because I think it'll be a good exercise for us, is in preparation for a more detailed examination of verses 14 through 18, to go back and start with chapter 2, verse 1, because what is the first phrase of verse 14 but remind them of these things? Well, then the question naturally arises, remind them of what things, uh, Paul? And I think the answer would be at least going back to chapter 2, verse 1, because he begins by saying, you therefore. So he's going to build an argument through chapter 2 based upon chapter 1, but there's certainly a turn uh, in his argument. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Where well, we're going to see that when we get to verses 14 through 18, he's very concerned about us rightly dividing the word of truth. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he challenges us to stand strong in God's grace. He then says, the things which you have heard, that is the clear uh, teaching of the Apostle Paul, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul gives it to Timothy. Timothy gives it to others. And Paul wants to see the others give it to even others. So there's a four-generational argument that Paul is arguing for and making in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And clearly the focus falls upon our being good, faithful, diligent teachers. All right? Then verse 3. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as 
a soldier. And so if verses 1 and 2 call us to have the perspective of a teacher, verses 3 and 4 call us to have the perspective of a soldier, and in particular, a soldier who has one interest in mind, and that is this, how might I please my commander-in-chief whose name is Jesus? All right? So we're to be a teacher. We're to be a soldier. But thirdly, we're to be an athlete or a competitor. Verse 5, and also... If anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In other words, it's possible for us to become disqualified. And so just as an athlete must train well and just as an athlete must uh, participate according to the rules. So we in ministry, those of us who wish to follow faithfully the Lord Jesus must be well trained how in the word of God. And we must also uh, compete, if you like, according to rules, that is, according to standards of holiness and godliness so that we do not become disqualified. So a teacher. A soldier, an athlete, but then a farmer. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. In other words, those who farm, uh, that's not a very uh, elegant job. It's not a job that draws much attention to itself. You show up day after day after day after day after day, and eventually the harvest comes. And when the harvest comes, you should be at the front of the line in rejoicing and sharing in the good things that happens from that harvest. Again, I'm reminded so well of what it means to show up day after day after day after day and not see anything happen immediately. The two great missionaries in the Baptist world, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, seven years each in their particular field of service before they saw even one single convert. But they kept showing up for duty. They kept plowing the field. They kept sowing the seed and God brought a harvest. And so he says in verse seven, consider then what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. And so verses one through seven kind of clearly hang together. Then he shifts in verse eight through ten and he uses a word that's similar to what we read in verse 14. Remember, So if you're to remind them in verse 14, already is telling them to remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. Now, hang on to that, because that's going to be challenged by Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 17 and verse 18. So the context is going to be crucial here. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, that is, he's the Messiah was raised from the dead according to my gospel. That is the gospel that I preach and teach. For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But, praise God, the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and eternal life. And then he shifts it one more time. This then is a faithful saying for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Although, let me quickly add, parenthetically, we can't live with him if he's not living. So the idea of the resurrection, which began in verse 8, continues on into what many Bible teachers believe was an early Christian hymn, verse 11, 12, and 13. So once more, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, picking up on the idea that he was developing there in verse 10, if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. But if we deny him, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, He will also deny us. 
And if we are faithless, well, we may be faithless. We may fall by the wayside, but he will not. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Then remind them of these things. What things, Paul? Be a teacher. Be a soldier. Be an athlete. Be a farmer in your mindset as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare back up even one step from the reality and the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And remember, though you may endure hardship and difficulty like me, even being chained, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. He cannot deny himself. He will remain faithful. So remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive after words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers, be diligent. Present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. And their message will spread like cancer or like gangrene, Hymenaeus, and Philetus are of this sort. Well, Paul, what's their problem with their teaching? They have strayed concerning the truth. They say that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, context, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ Jesus depart from iniquity. How is it then, based upon verses 1 through uh, uh, 13 and verse 19 and following, how is it in verses 14 through 18 that Paul admonishes us to be servants approved of the Lord Jesus? Well, let me show you a couple of things and we'll jump right in. The text is driven by three imperatives. You might want to mark these. Actually, my outline does it for you. The first one is in verse 14. Remind them. It's a present imperative. Word of command, continuous action. You continually remind them of these things. Uh, the second imperative is found in verse 15. Be diligent. Uh, stay after it. Be diligent. And then the third imperative is found in verse 16. But shun. So two of the imperatives are positive, aren't they? Remind them, be diligent. But that then is coupled with, or at least set in contrast to a negative imperative in verse 16, but shun. And so what we're going to see in this text is that Paul gives us some guidelines in terms of warning us about heresy and false teaching and then exposing the errors of false teaching that we might discern them and discern them clearly. So... An approved servant of Jesus will do three things. Number one, he will be careful with his words. Verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive or to battle about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. He notes that in the context of being careful with our words, that we have a charge from our Savior. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord. Interestingly, when Paul moves to conclude this letter in chapter 4, verse 1, he will say, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach 
the word. It's very clear that throughout these four chapters, Paul is vitally concerned about the importance and the centrality in your life and my life of the word of God. And so he says, remind them of these things, of these good words that I've already laid out for you in chapter one and chapter two and charge them. It's a solemn oath. Uh, charge them with an oath before the Lord. What? Not to strive. It means to battle. Not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. There are eight different negatives that Paul notes in verse 14 through 18 that you and I have to be on guard against. You say, where are they? Well, he says there are words to no profit. And words that ruin the hearers in verse 14. He then talks in verse 16 about profane talking and idle babblings that will lead to ungodliness. He talks about words or a message in verse 17 that will spread like cancer or like gangrene. He says in verse 18, there is a teaching that strays from the truth and there's a teaching that overthrows the faith of some. That's powerful. Four verses, eight very strong words about the danger of teaching and listening and following the wrong thing. So he begins kind of in verse 14. He doesn't really specify a specific doctrine. In fact, it almost seems to be the case that he's talking about people who are fussing and fighting and arguing and griping and disagreeing over things that when everything is said and done at this point in his argument, they really don't matter. So charge them not to, to battle, not to wage a war with Words. In fact, one commentator said these are the word warriors, not the road warriors, the word warriors. And they just are the kind of people who are looking for a theological fight. Uh, they want to have a, a doctrinal uh, knockdown and they just want to fuss and fight and fume and argue and gripe and complain. And they want to split hairs that really don't need to be split. I've talked about it before, maybe even recently in this context, but when it comes to one's eschatology, there are some things that are non-negotiable. There are some things that are not up for debate. Uh, the reality of the historical bodily return of Jesus, it's not up for debate. Uh, the reality of heaven and hell as eternal destinies, that's not up for debate. The fact that we will all stand before God in judgment, either at the judgment seat of Christ as believers, having our works as believers judged, or being at the great white throne judgment and being judged there as unbelievers out of the books of works and being cast in the lake of fire, that's not up for debate. Now, whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, partial rapture, pre-wrath rapture, whether you think you know the Antichrist or not, the false prophet or not, whether you think you've got figured out the sealed judgment, the trumpet judgments, the bold judgment, the fight over those kind of things is silly. And the fight over those kind of things will divide a fellowship needlessly and unnecessarily. And so Paul says, don't become a word warrior over these kind of things that what leads to no profit and even the ruin of the hearers. And so we have to be very careful with our words to say it another way. Know what things are worth fighting over and what things are not. Know what hills are worth dying over on and what hills are not. And so this is how he admonishes here. First of all, be careful with 
your words. Secondly, rightly handle the word of God. And this is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. In fact, if you want a, a, a basis for why we have a seminary and you want to have the basis for why we have a teaching ministry in the local church, here it is. Be diligent. It's an imperative. Uh, be diligent to what? Present yourself. Wait. Isn't it my pastor's responsibility to present me approved to God? No, it's your responsibility. It is Brother Bill's responsibility. It is my responsibility. It is Randy's responsibility. It is David's responsibility to accurately teach the word of God. But there's a sense in which you are responsible yourself to be approved before God. All of us, every one of us is called by God to be a diligent student and workman of the word. Be diligent, present yourself approved to God. How? A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Mark that word. We saw it for the first time back in verse 8. We saw it again in chapter 1, verse 12. We saw it a third time in chapter 1, verse 16. Now for a fourth time, Paul brings up this idea in a different context, though. Don't be ashamed before the Lord as a worker who is not approved. Well, how do I do that, Paul? You rightly divide the word of truth. Isn't it interesting how he stands in stark contrast words that are of no profit, and that lead to the ruin of the hearers. And here he talks about words that indeed are words of truth that when embraced and when followed and when obeyed will allow us to present ourselves to God without any shame. Now, one of the reasons tonight I gave you the backside of your outline is simply once more to remind you of just some very basic guiding principles to help you and me in terms of, a, of pursuing a lifestyle that will allow us to indeed be approved to God and workmen who do not need to be ashamed. You say, what are they? Well, again, the context rules when interpreting the text. We don't want a text uh, out of its context, it then becomes a pretext, and so often the Bible is badly, badly mishandled and abused by people yanking it out of context and making it say something that it does not say or mean at all. Secondly, the text must be interpreted in light of all Scripture. One of the great principles of the Reformation is Scripture is its best interpreter. And the fact of the matter is you cannot begin to build any doctrine whether it be the doctrine of God or the Bible or humanity or Christ or salvation, you can't build that doctrine until you bring everything the Bible has to say about that particular doctrine. Number three, Scripture will never contradict itself. Why? Because ultimately it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God, and God is a God of truth. God, therefore, cannot speak error. God cannot contradict Himself, and therefore, the Bible does not contradict itself. If you think it does, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with you. You're reading it wrongly. You're not understanding it correctly. Granted, it is written in the words of men, but ultimately, it is the Word of God. And so we operate from the presupposition that it is completely true and trustworthy. We use the words inerrant and infallible. But number four, very crucial. Scripture should be interpreted literally. Or if you're a note taker out by the side of it, write the word naturally. Naturally. In other words, we interpret the Bible according to its plain, normal, natural sense. 
if a preacher stands up here and preaches, and after the service, someone says to him, you know, you saw things in that text I've never seen before. That's not necessarily a compliment. And in fact, it may actually be an indictment that you have again mishandled the Bible by reading into it a meaning that is not there. In fact, again, to teach you a couple of important words, we believe in what we call exegesis, pulling out of the text the meaning that is there. We do not believe in eisegesis, reading into the text a meaning that is not there. That's one of the great benefits, by the way, brothers and sisters, of teaching straight through the Bible, uh, chapter by chapter and uh, uh, verse by verse and phrase by phrase and word by word, because then you don't, it's much more difficult for you to bring your agenda to the Bible and read into it something that just is not in that text. Number five, do not develop doctrine from obscure or difficult passages. In other words, the clear meaning text always take precedence over the less clear text in terms of their meaning. Number six, we discover the author's original intended meaning. In the context of Second Timothy, the question we're asking is, how would Timothy have understood this letter when he received it? That's our first question. How would Timothy have understood this letter when he received it? Then once we discern that, then we can begin to ask the question, all right, how does this same letter... Being the eternal, ever-abiding Word of God, how does it speak to my life? Now, keep in mind, the meaning does not change. There's only one meaning of a text. But the applications do change depending upon circumstances and time and all sorts of other things. So, again, as we teach at the seminary and as we would teach here, a text has one meaning, but a massive number of applications. But the question we ask first is not, how does it apply? Now, you've got to establish the meaning before you can ask the question, how does it apply? Then finally, check your conclusions using reliable resources, such as dictionaries and encyclopedias and commentaries. In fact, today, I was uh, given the opportunity of speaking to about 12 uh, prospective students at uh, the seminary. They had visited the campus, uh, had gone to the special lectureship today by Dr. Carson, and then they were in my office, and we sort of got into a conversation about studying the Bible. And I simply said to them that, uh, almost without exception, I have never in my life taught from a text that I did not use at least six to eight resources. And that's true tonight as well. Uh, if I have time, I'll use 12 to 15 resources. And so one of them said, well, how many commentaries do you have on certain books of the Bible? I said, well, I have no less than uh, seven or eight on every book. And some books I have somewhere between 10 and 15 and even a couple of others. I even have more than, for example, I did uh, write a book on the epistles of John. I have 40 some odd commentaries on the epistle of John. Now, do I read them every... No, 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 they take a long, long time, but I read them when I wrote a book on it. But like tonight, teaching on a Second Timothy, I have on my desk and on my shelf about 12 commentaries that I get through as many as I can until, you know, time runs out. And the idea of ever getting up here and teaching you without reading some other good, godly men would never enter my mind. You say, why? Because I don't see everything. I have blind spots. I'm not all that smart. I'm really not. And so what I want to do is let good, godly men come alongside of me. And I can't, you know, call back the dead. 
I can't get these guys to move down from various parts of the country or other parts of the world, but I have their books. And their books is like sitting down with Don Carson and F.F. F. Bruce and I. Howard Marshall and Grant Osborne and Douglas Moo and Walt Kaiser and just saying, hey, guys, tell me what you think about this particular text. And there they are in their books to help me. And once more, and I'll move on, I, I've always taught my students, if you are the only person to understand a text in a particular way, you may be right. But you're probably not. In fact, I'd say the odds that you're right are about one out of a million. Because basically what you're saying is all these good, brilliant, godly students of the Bible for 2,000 years got it wrong. But here I am. And I'm the first one to ever get it right. Highly, highly, highly unlikely. And so reading these men simply gives you a way of checking your own conclusions about the Bible so that what you will rightly divide the word of truth. So what is involved? Two things. It involves very hard work in the word. Be diligent. It is a word that means to strive. It, it carries the idea of toil and effort. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed. So let's just be honest. It requires hard work in the Word to brightly handle the Word of God. And if you are a Sunday school teacher, a Bible teacher, I've got news for you. You can't put 30 minutes into it and get it done. I don't even think you can put a couple of hours into it and get it done. Again, so I'm just teaching children. Well, you have the most important job of all. You have the most important job of all. I've said this before. Adults are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, and you can barely get them to listen or do anything. You're welcome. But children are malleable. Children can be influenced. Children listen. They actually believe what you tell them. You tell them God can do something great in their lives, and they'll give their lives, and they'll actually consider that. And so you need to likewise rightly handle the word that you might teach those little ones correctly and accurately, as well as in a way that draws their little hearts to the wonderful truths of God's word. It does involve hard work in the word. And secondly, it leads to accurate interpretation of the word that you might rightly divide the word of truth. So we must be careful with our words. No need to fight about things that really don't matter. Secondly, rightly handle the word. You need to be sure about the things that really do matter. And then number three, we will oppose the destroyers of the faith if we wish to be an approved servant of Jesus. He says there in verse 16, shun, shun. Uh, it has the idea of putting away, shun, avoid the message by Eugene Peterson says, just stay clear of what? Those who are profane and those that he describes as idle babblers, idle babblers. The marginal reading of New King James says empty chatterers, empty chatterers. Brian uh, Chapel said it this way. Empty chatterers come from godless chatterboxes. I like that. Empty chatterers come from godless Chatterboxes. You say, how do you know they're godless? Because what the last phrase in verse 16 says, they will increase to more what? Ungodliness. He knew exactly what he was saying. So there are certain kinds of people that the Bible says we need to shun. 
Uh, the Bible says that we need to avoid. The Bible says you just need to stay clear of certain kinds of teachers. They are profane. They question the sacred. They are empty chatterers. And what they do simply increases or leads to more ungodliness. You say, uh, Paul, can you give me an example? And he says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 17. Their message will spread like, and it's debated. Uh, we, we can't be clear. Some translations say the best uh, way to go is cancer. Uh, the others say the best way to go is gangrene. And the ancient word can go either way. It clearly is talking about something that spreads rapidly throughout a body and kills it. Something that will spread rapidly throughout the body and kill it. So their message, that is these profane uh, idle babblers, these profane godless chatterboxes, their message will spread like cancer or gangrene, Hymenaeus, who was mentioned already back in chapter 1, and uh, Philetus are of this sort. And so he then describes them for us in terms of what they have done and what they are. Excuse me, Philetus, Hymenaeus was mentioned earlier in First uh, Timothy 1.20. So there we go. All right, so now here's what they did. Here's where their, their teaching led astray. Uh, they went astray concerning the truth. How? Well, they said the resurrection has already passed. And by this, they have overthrown the faith of some. Now, in my notes, I have pointed out that in the ancient world, it was probably the Platonists, I'll explain that, that were denying the resurrection. But in our world, it's the liberals who deny the resurrection. You say, what do you mean by the Platonists? Well, in the ancient world, uh, you all know the great teachers were uh, Plato. Uh, let's back up. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in that order. And Plato, in particular, had a particular way of looking at life. And to use an analogy that will help you get where he was coming from, Plato said the body is the prison house of the soul. In other words, Plato had a very negative view about the body, as did almost all of Greek philosophy. So the body, at best, is inferior. At worst, it is bad. And so for them, salvation or deliverance would be separation from and deliverance from your body. Well, evidently, these two men by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus bought into that. And so what they did was they denied the physical resurrection and they created a theology or a doctrine of a spiritual resurrection. And so you say, well, now, hold on a second then what do they think, or what did they think happened to the body of Jesus? And the answer is, they would say the body of Jesus is still rotting somewhere in a Judean tomb. He was not bodily raised from the dead. You say, but maybe their spiritual resurrection theology is okay. Take your Bible very quickly and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection, resurrection chapter of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we'll just read verse 12 through verse 20. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 20. Paul's just made a very strong apologetic for the bodily resurrection of Jesus grounded in the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. But then he says, but there's a problem. Verse 12 of first Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is in essence what we and the apostles are preaching, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words, how is it that some of you are saying that the doctrine of bodily resurrection is not true? 
And so Paul says, all right, I'm going to take up your your argument, but let me show you the logic of where your argument will go if you deny the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, number one, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then number two, our preaching is empty. Number three, your faith is also empty. Verse 15, yes. Number four, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith, number five, is futile. Number six, you are still in your sins. Number seven, also all those who have fallen asleep, who've died in Christ, they're perished and gone too. And therefore, number eight, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Jesus. Paul says that the bodily resurrection is not up for debate. Uh, the bodily resurrection is not negotiable. And the kind of teaching that spreads like gangrene and will destroy a fellowship is that kind of teaching. And you say, well, we're, we don't have to worry about that, Brother Danny, because Platonism is not the, the in vogue philosophy or way of thinking anymore. Yes, but there is, as I mentioned a moment ago, a thing called liberalism. Uh, I hold in my hand tonight what is called the Interpreter's Bible Commentary. Uh, this is a very famous commentary series. Uh, it was done by all uh, PhDs, uh, almost all of whom have an anti-supernatural approach to the Bible. Several years ago, I was working through Acts chapter 1, the ascension passage where uh, Jesus goes back to heaven and the angels say to the men, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, listen to what the interpreter's Bible commentary says about the ascension of Jesus and the promise that he will come again. Quote, at the very moment that we want Jesus to be most vivid, something obscures him. Indeed, this verse would suggest a good sermon, the absence of Jesus. You see, all things come and go in life. And the heavens also fascinate people. And the early Christians looked toward heaven because they believed Jesus was there. Though their sight may have been inaccurate, According to our standards, because we're so much more enlightened and sophisticated and noble than those stupid, dumb buckets of the first century, though their sight may have been inaccurate according to our standards, their insight was indubitably sound. They knew Jesus, where Jesus was. Why? Now, this is so tragic and hilarious at the same time. They knew where Jesus was. Why? Because they knew. All good things go up. They never go down. Jesus was good, radically and wonderfully good. And when he no longer went about his accustomed ways, they knew that he had gone up. 
that he had ascended because he was supremely good. And these men were right also in knowing that Jesus would come back. Quote, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. They knew he would come back because he told them he would. They believed what he said because truth always comes back. In fact, truth never goes away. It is men who forsake the truth. And so from the cross to the campaigns of modern barbarism, men have tried to subtract Christ from human existence. Yet in some unexpected and undreamt way, Christ always comes back. Now, listen carefully. One mistake, however, these early Christian men made. They thought that he would come back the same way he went. Well, duh, that's what the dang angels told him up there. He will come back in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. One more time. One mistake, however, these early Christian men made. They thought that he would come back the same way he went. So they watched the skies for his return. They forgot. Or perhaps they never knew that things seldom come back the way they go. History never repeats itself quite. You see, the people we love always come back to us, but seldom do they come back in exactly the same way that they left us. In the glance of a young daughter's eye, a wife lost early may come back to her husband. Across a page of poetry, years later, a friend comes back to his comrades. Those, therefore, who have watched the sky for Jesus have been disappointed, and so will they always be. Can I read that one more time? Those, therefore, who have watched the sky for Jesus have been disappointed, and so will they always be. He will never come that way. Brother David can tell you this was the most popular commentary series among liberals. Is that not correct, uh, Dr. Lanier? Sold hundreds of thousands of copies among those who were in Presbyterian and uh, Lutheran and Episcopalian. And uh, at one time, these things, you said, where did you get this? I bought this at a Southern Baptist seminary years ago. Because during the days of theological liberalism in our convention, this was held up as one of the standards for the students who were coming out of our six seminaries. What does this lead to? Cancer. Spiritual, theological gangrene that the Bible says have caused some to stray and that will overthrow the faith of some. When uh, David and I taught at uh, Crystal College, I remember a young man coming to our school named Gary Willett. Gary had come from a Baptist college. I will not name the state or the college, but he had transferred out of that college because, as he said, I nearly lost my faith. Uh, the liberal department of religion just about killed me. And uh, he said, you know, uh, Dr. Aiken, there were about 40 of us that entered into that college as freshmen into the religious studies program, preparing to go into ministry. He said, after one year, after one year, only five were still 
pursuing and preparing for ministry. There are some words worth fighting over. There are some truths that we dare not negotiate. If we do, it will be of no profit. It will be to our ruin. We will stray from the truth and we will overthrow the faith of some. In fact, it could be tragically the faith of your children or your grandchildren whom you thought you were entrusting to people that were reliable. But in actuality, we're peddling a theology that is like cancer or gangrene. It really does matter, brothers and sisters, that we rightly divide the word of truth, this book called the Bible. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word. Help us, Lord, indeed, to be discerning, to be diligent workmen, to not be caught up with uh, things that really don't matter. But, Lord, help us not to back up one inch from those things that matter greatly and eternally. I thank you so much for Paul, who would stand strong against those who would teach false teaching. And, Lord, if he is writing these kind of words as he approached the end of his life, then, Lord, we must also recognize the crucial nature of what we are studying and reading in Second Timothy. So, Lord, may we indeed be diligent workmen who are not ashamed, but who indeed consistently and faithfully rightly divide the word of truth that we might be used by you to build up your body, your church, that we might be not a sick church, but a healthy church, walking in truth and living the truth all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, how to prepare for the last days. I'll see you then. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.